Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Welcome to the Truth to Power show. I'm your host, VGR Nathan, and this is Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, today's guest is Sandhya Lankani. Sandhya is a founder of Literary Safari, which has been producing and creating kids', kids educational content since 2008, including literary games, learning games for Line Television, E-Line Media, and UNICEF. In 2014, she embarked on an experimental journey to create her own apps, Multicultural Audiences, because um, she was having trouble finding uh, EdTech media that was fun and came with a rigorous pedagogy, and was diverse. One result was her award-winning game, Hangart, which uh, Common Sense Media featured as its best EdTech of 2016, a list of 20 best apps, games, and websites for learning. Her experience in the digital kids media space led her to start KidMap, the Kids Inclusive and Diverse Media Action Project, with an inter- interdisciplinary group that was created uh, that is creating a Dig Diverse and Inclusive Growth Toolkit for children's media producers and consumers. Welcome, Sandhya. Thanks, Vijay. Good to see you. Good to see you. So, uh, why don't we start a little bit talking about your work in uh, educational apps and how that's um, how they evolved and how, how, what it's bringing to the community? Sure, so um, I started um, my business about 10 years ago and at some point the um, digital wild west became the space in which educational publishing really wanted to um, break into essentially. And at, as part of my work with various clients, one of the things that my company was hired to do was help to produce the content um, for learning games. So typically a team that produces a learning game would be the game designers and then the content people. And we were the content people, so we were brought on on a couple of different projects for um, clients such as um, one was Lion Television. Uh, they wanted to create a game based on their award-winning series um, History Detectives, which used to air on um, PBS. So. Um, They had a game uh, development company and came to us and said, can you help us figure out how to actually create storylines that support the game that we want to make? Um, Another game that we were hired to do was for a consortium of um, technology companies that wanted to create a learning game um, to help kids explore STEM careers. So that game was called Ion Future. And they knew that they they had the game idea in mind in terms of they wanted it to be a branching game, um, but they weren't sure, you know, they needed help with figuring out which STEM careers to include and to interview different um, professionals and then weave their stories into gameplay. So um, I started doing a lot of work around, I guess, what what we call narrative game design. for outside companies and along the way I started finding that you know as as a person of color who has lived um, in different countries is an American but I was born in Ghana I lived in India and I came to America at age 12 so I really see the world from many different lenses Um, and I have family living all over the world So I've traveled a lot, and so that's always been a big part of me and how I view the world. But I realized that as we are creating content for children in our American schools, we need to be very purposeful and mindful about the kinds of information that we and stories that we bring to them so that they really represent 
the diversity of our nation and of our world so, so that we can create global citizens. So I started you know, yeah. sort of really thinking about this a lot. I know this is a long-winded way of yeah. getting to my own apps, uh-huh. but this work that I was doing for other people started showing me the challenges of doing this, and I felt really compelled once I was done creating these products for other companies to really learn how to make our own app so that I could understand what it means to really truly create something that is diverse and inclusive from step one. A lot of times we were brought into projects to help others, um, you know, create balanced storytelling, but it was, it was later. We sort of had to find pieces to add or we had to, you know, make, make do with what was out there. And when the app store exploded and there were all sorts of games out there for children and I started looking for my child, I found that there were a lot of, you know, fun games, but they didn't really, you know, reflect or serve as windows, doors, or mirrors. I'm sure you've heard that yeah, metaphor. Yeah, so, so important to have apps. You know, kids are, are going crazy for the games. I know as I've been working in the library, you know, the kids come in, they're, they're playing Minecraft, they're playing all these games. So it's important to introduce educational and informational thing in their, in their gameplay. So that if you're talking a little bit about narrative-driven yeah. games. If you tell a little bit about uh, what context is that, uh, in regards to narrative, or did you sure. clarify a little bit? Some? Um, yeah, so when we talk about the narrative um, design of a game, so I, maybe I'll talk about the most recent yeah. game that we did for um, uh, UNESCO. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a Mahatma Gandhi Institute of Education and Peace, and they had um, awarded a, a large grant um, to a company, uh, to a game design company, to build a game called World Rescue. And the idea was to create this game that would teach middle schoolers and high, early high schoolers about the United Nations Sustainable Sustainable Development Goals. Mm. So they had a game idea and a game concept in mind, and the game was actually in process of being created, but they knew they wanted five characters in the game. They wanted five characters from five different countries around the world, um, who would each be exploring a different challenge in that particular region. So one of um, our team's challenge as the narrative designers for this game Mm -hmm. called World Rescue was to A, identify which countries, like if you're saying South Asia, you can't just say this is a South Asian character, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, in our case, it was India, right? And um, if you're saying, I I think it's even more important to to acknowledge this about Africa, because, you know, Mm. Africa is a large continent with so many countries. And if you say Mm. we have an African character, what does that mean? Yeah. And kind of comments on how, like, we have we have to have people from or diverse people who are have experiences in countries, so that then they can speak a little bit more to the experience of that country and be more zoned in on the sensitivities and such around that. A lot of people can be tone deaf to, you know, a lot of these like major companies and such can be tone deaf. We've seen a lot of advertisements for companies where they they show a tone deafness to, yeah. you know, like... Right, I mean, yeah. Africa is not a, yeah. you know, a country, right? Yeah. So it takes it takes definitely people who are in tune with it, right? I think it also, it, it's especially important to ground anything in research yeah. and to really, you know, to be um, cognizant of the, the, the subtleties, right? So mm. when we came on... Um, the, the book that, I mean, the, the character that had been created was a character from, you know, quote, Africa, whose name was Ankle because he liked so- uh, soccer. Mm. And 
you know, there that's not an African name, and that's you know, to say a kid child is from Africa doesn't give us much context. So yeah. you know, we really ended up narrowing it down and creating a character from Kenya, you know, who was a refugee. Um, who was living in Kenya but was a refugee from Sudan. And that was the specificity with which we approached each of the characters in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we did the narrative design, we had to create the characters and then from there um, look at the countries themselves and really spend time researching what are the challenges that you know folks are facing around the sustainable development goals. For example, in India, we decided to focus on drought and create mm. a storyline that would, you know, be woven into the gameplay yeah. um, about a young woman who goes to a village that is facing drought and helps bring solutions to them. So whether it's, you know, aid or even new technology. So in India, for example, there's um, a new technology called scuba rice, where you can actually, you know, you plant the, a special type of rice and it will grow even during. Um, flooding, right? So you wouldn't actually lose all your paddy fields. So really, so that as children are playing games, they're learning about real life solutions Mm -hmm. because that makes the gameplay richer. Good, good. So So, all I think the narrative and such and the the game um, objectives all have to be informed by diverse perspectives, but also thinking about the principles of Education, how and the aspects of educational aspects. Um, you know, the, the, one of the things from your site on Litter Safari is that the four C's of 21st century education, you know, creativity, cr- critical thinking, communication, and collaboration. If you could talk a little bit about how, you know, these, these narratives, these gameplays are able to enforce these principles or, or principles of education to, to integrate in a, a kind of way of critical thinking or analyst kind of thing, yeah. Sure. So, um, you know, when we wanted to make our own apps, that was actually one of the big, um, the four C's definitely informed um, the work that we did with creating, you know, a series of our own apps at Literary Safari that are now available um, in, in the App Store and on Google Play. So we created two story to, uh, storybook apps. Um, one is Dentist Bird and the other is Grandma's Great Board that are um, fo- based on folk tales. Um, one from Liberia, West Africa, and the other is a Bengali folktale, so from India and Bangladesh, mm-hmm. um, based on a book by um, a well-known children, uh, children and adult author. And then the third app is called Hangart, and it's a literacy uh, game, basically kind of inspired by Hangman, actually. Mm-hmm. And what we were thinking about was when you give a child an iPad and you know you say to them, here's a fun game for you to play, what are the things that you want to get out of it for them? Okay, as a parent, I'm, I have an eight-year-old, so I know that one of the things that is easy for me to do is to hand my child an iPad or my phone and say, play a game, because it gives me a little bit of time to get something done. That mm-hmm. is one of the major ways in which screen time is utilized um, by parents. And oftentimes, I find also in classrooms, when a teacher has something to get done, there are, you know, there are... Um, sites and games that are deemed educational and then you can put the child on that you go to the library you have the same thing but what is truly what makes something educational engaging and a learning game is when you have um, these four C's that you know sort of all match up together so it's a creative experience where a child not doesn't just um, 
engage in a one-way scenario but actually create something in the process mm-hmm. um it's it can be collaborative um as a media mentor yourself i'm yeah. sure that you think about this a lot in terms of you know when people come into a library how are they not just how do you create community right yeah so technology has that power to create community and how can we even if we hand a child an ipad or a, you know a game give it um, create space in it for children to use it to engage with one another. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, so that's the collaboration piece as well. And then the... the um, oh. <laughs> yeah, creative thing. Uh, yeah, creativity, and, yeah. You know, the, the creativity, the collaboration, the curiosity, yeah. right? Um, again, and so one of, the, one of the pieces I think I wanted to try working with as we created our own apps was experiment with how to make that possible because it's it's one thing to say you know oh my client didn't do this or oh tech you know apps out there don't do that it's another thing to actually learn how to do it yourself so that you can say okay i feel like i've done it well or i feel like i've seen what the challenges are and um as a media you know children's media producer constantly moving from one area to the other i started out in classroom magazines I moved to textbooks then I went to learning games done apps and digital content and Mm. I'm now doing um, books as well you know so in all those spaces how do you create the same opportunities for children to have that equal experience yeah also I would just say uh, before we move on to the publishing aspects uh, that you know I find in general that the society we're kind of restricting ourselves to certain narratives uh, Western Judeo-Christian narratives that, uh, that you know kind of restrict the human narrative, and that by kind of reintroducing and, and getting more places or spaces for um, uh, you know African tales uh, from different countries in Africa, Ghana, and and uh, Kenya, their folklores to introduce that to the more general American population, so that then we can draw on the whole humanity, uh, a whole, a whole uh, tapestry of humanity's narratives that. We can then reflect on and, and be able to access each other's narratives. That where we're all coming from is so important to be able to access all these folklores. Otherwise, it's like we're always thinking about the Greek narrative and the mm-hmm. Greek mythology. We're not ha- bringing that into the conversation about, uh, yeah. I mean, Absolutely, you know. yeah. With um, it was interesting when we worked on Grandma's Great Gourd. It's a story uh, of, like I said, it's a Bengali folktale about mm-hmm. a grandmother who goes into the forest through, on a journey and meets three different animals who want to eat her and she convinces them to let her go and and says you can eat me on my way back home yeah um and then on her way back home she she and her daughter devise a very clever way of you know hiding her in a in a gourd they hollow out the gourd and put her inside and i loved working on the story because as we did it you know all these layers unfolded how you know kids could actually see the similarity to little red riding hood three billy goat scruff there are all these parallel you know, stories from different cultures. And once you actually start looking at all of them, you start seeing, just like you said, the universality of, you know, what does great storytelling do and what emotions does it bring out? What does it teach us? And how can we, as adults and as children, actually learn, you know, problem solving? That's the other, you know, 21st century skill, right? How do you problem solve? And it's, it's through stories, I think, that we really learn, you know, solutions to real world problems right yeah i was here so. i was seeing the meme that 
you know, in education, uh, we learn about algebra, we learn that, you know, we haven't used X plus Y in, as adults, yeah. but it did teach us that critical thinking, it did teach us or equip us with critical thinking that we're able to apply in problem solving and in, in daily life to be able to apply. So my, uh, just to think about how you know, education has kind of not prioritized, at least in my education, is not prioritized like some of the adult skills like budgeting and mm -hmm. taxes and all these kinds of things, but at the same time we learn our ability to uh, critical, think critically to be able to apply those skills in these situations. But what, do you, what are your thoughts about uh, diversifying uh, the expanding on critical thinking and, and education? Yeah. Yeah, I think um, I think we have somewhat narrow yeah. definitions of what critical thinking is sometimes. Mm. Yeah, um, exactly. And yeah. right now, the big thing, you know. Um, is well in testing it's you know not you have to everyone wants to read non-fiction right yeah. you have to teach children to read non-fiction and analyze non-fiction and um and i'm not bashing non-fiction at all yeah. because i think it's it is Im an important skill and but i think when you present non-fiction to an eight-year-old and it's a stale form of non-fiction you have them turning away from it because you have one kind of nonfiction that you're showing them. If you, if if children think of nonfiction as a passage on a sheet of paper that they have to answer multiple choice questions for, yeah. rather than you know a magazine or teach kids how to read newspapers. I encountered a child yesterday who who said, you know, what is that? I was picking up a newspaper for my driveway. Mm. What is that? I they don't you know kids yeah. don't see newspapers anymore, right? They, and yeah. they see their parents reading newspapers on, on the phones, phone, yeah. right? So I love like one of the things that I love um, as a parent myself is the New York Times now has a children's print section once a month. Mm -hmm. So you know once a month we get the newspaper and we read it as a family. You know the kids section, although it says do not you know this is not for grown ups, right? Yeah. Um, but we also you know we, we need to diversify our thinking about you know, critical thinking beyond just reading and, yeah. you know, by having kids work in groups together and looking at the news. And I think that's where, you know, when we're talking about what's happening in our country today, uh -huh. if we if we look at the news critically as a family, as a classroom, as a school, as librarians, whatever, and teach kids to distinguish between what is real and fake. Yeah. I think we would have created a generation that, you know, can avoid some of the mistakes that are being made. Yeah, information today. literacy, I think, yeah. is what it comes down to. Be mm -hmm. ability to receive um, information and be able to discern mm -hmm. what the sources are, how does this how is this information how is this information translating to knowledge, how does it mm -hmm. uh, how, what's false, what's what's true. All these kinds of abilities are very important, especially in today's age. Uh, being able to discern, um, you know, what to believe, yeah. Yeah, and I think we have amazing opportunities to do that because, you know, we are, we have a generation of young children who are, you know, being born and really raised on, on the, you know, on digital devices, right? I think so, called digital natives. Yeah, yeah digital yeah. natives, right? Yeah. So, you know, Google is just, is inherent, right? And yeah. so if they're going on and searching, you can immediately, you know, as our, my generation had to learn 
and be taught like what are good websites and what are bad websites yeah. and oh you know even just from what's going on right now I posted an, an article on Facebook about an, a museum exhibit just yesterday I made the same mistake I didn't read the dateline and I told all my friends in San Francisco to go see it yeah. and then you know somebody said well this was three years ago oh, right and yeah. this is, I mean it's a small mistake but it yeah. could have been a worse article that I yeah. had shared right yeah. so so I think you know with kids I think teaching them how to read the bylines, how to look at the sources, how to, you know, really dis- discern the information and dissect it is mm. an opportunity that we have. So even if, and that's where collaboration, even around our, you know, digital devices with our kids or our, you know, young people in our lives can can come in, right? It yeah. doesn't have to be, oh, I'm on my phone, you don't need to be bothered with it, let's just put it away. Yeah. We can use that as an opportunity and a teachable moment. Good, good. So in one of my previous uh, episodes, the episode called Being American, we talked a little bit about publishing and uh, the need for diversity in publishing and the uh, kind of um, importance of diversity. We spoke a little bit about this in the uh, app section, but uh, but uh, if you give a little commentary on diverse voices and how you and, and, and your work has uh, encouraged that, yeah, I mean, you explored a little bit of specifically in publishing, yeah. Sure. So, yeah. Um, so I'm thinking about, well, so right now one of the, the projects that we've been working on um, at Literary Safari for the last year has been helping a, um, a, a publisher that creates content for the school market, so an mm-hmm. educational publisher, um, create a new line of fiction-leveled read- fiction books with an emphasis on diverse authors. So they came to us and said, you know, we want to refresh, redo our um, books for third, fourth, and fifth graders. Can you help us do this? So we've been, uh, we were given topics, and then we had to help them find the right authors and then edit those stories. So I think some of the challenges of doing that and some of the opportunities are that we we can look at around our country and we can see that there's a need for the the diverse diversity of kids in the classrooms to have stories given to them that represent you know different perspectives that don't just speak to you know me as a South Asian necessarily so it's just that I need more stories about being Indian mm. I think I need more stories also that might have an Indian character who's a single mom for yeah, example right yeah. so it's not just about diversifying ethnicities yeah. it's about diversifying perspectives mm. and diversifying tropes right we don't need the same tropes and we don't need the same old um ways of telling stories about mm. different people. So mm. if we have stories about Native Americans, they don't all have to be Native American folk tales, right? Yeah. So that has been part of um, what we've been very actively doing for the last year. And I'm really excited about some of the kinds of stories that we were able to tell um, by work, you know, kind of hiring trade children's book authors and giving them a slight story idea and then working with them to refine it so even if it's you know switching up how we represent genders, right? And you know if it's if it's a girl story, it could also be a girl story about a girl who's coding, right? Like you know, kind mm. of um, diversifying the kind of storytelling that's out there. I'm not sure if I'm answering your yeah, question. Yeah, I think it's important to be able to um, when we think about in popular media and and uh, digesting information about 
where the characters that are from diverse backgrounds, sometimes they're written in as stereotypes. So, you know, being able to break through and being able to understand. And people then say, like, for example, like there was a recent uh, documentary about the problem with the poo. Uh, I didn't get a chance to see it, but oh, I, I've been yeah. meaning to. Mm-hmm. Did you? Do you get a chance to see that? I haven't one? seen it oh, yet. Yeah. No. That's something I've been meaning to yeah, see because uh, you know, having grown up on The Simpsons and seeing Apu mm-hmm. as a character, uh, you know, it's easy to be like, "Oh, we're targeting that character." But how South Asians and how all people of, of ethnic background are are depicted, and many times not depicted from the perspective of that ethnicity. You know, it's mm-hmm. depicted by someone outside of that perspective. Yeah. So yeah, uh, yeah. and how it relates to giving a chance to people from various backgrounds to be able to speak from their perspective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And tell uh, there's tell an, our own voices movement, right? You know, to be able to tell stories about myself is very different than someone else telling a story about mm-hmm. me, yeah. which I think for very long in publishing, um, you know, when you were looking for, for example, I was looking for stories about a particular Indian folktale mm-hmm. and 90, 95% of the stories I found yeah. were not written by, you know, Indian storytellers or South yeah. Asian storytellers. And what does that say about where the publishing industry was? It's changed a lot in the last few years. And, you know, the We Need Diverse Books movement has had a great deal to do with it. Um, and publishers are sitting up and taking notice. Um, that that shift that has happened in the trade publishing world um, has been noticed by you know school publishers and school publishers are now doing the same thing you know trying to change and bring kids a new set of voices so that they can um, kind of be more of a reflection of of the the, the hands that they're going to reach into yeah and then um you know, also in regards to uh, the social structures that we live in, the uh, the tendency in people to identify or have sympathy or empathy towards people who either look like them or are seg- you know these kind of bubbles we live in where we're kind of segregating according to uh, race, class, and gender, and being able to disrupt and kind of uh, integrate in social spaces so that then we're able to um, have community, have a sense of. Uh, diverse community be able to have uh, dialogue, cross-cultural dialogue, which is the themes I think of what I'm getting from what you're saying and how uh, to what extent or how are we able to, or what are pathways you find, uh, you know in, in uh, also recently in New York City they had controversy over this the uh, desegregation of schools mm-hmm. and the idea that, you know um, diversifying this, where you're going to school, the people you're going to school with is such an important aspect of the comments a little bit on that, yeah. Sure. So I think um, the conversation around diversity, I had a re- interesting conversation with um, a school administrator lately where I pointed out that, um, you know, the school that my daughter attends, mm-hmm. I don't think is, is very diverse. And what can we do to, you know, support learning about diversity and tolerance mm-hmm. and, you know, do more around anti-bias education mm. um, in, in our district. And it was a really interesting conversation because while on one hand it was a supportive and open listening, the, the, the response I also got was, oh, but we are diverse. We have kids from so many different 
cultural backgrounds compared to what we had you know, maybe 20 years ago, which mm-hmm. is true. But I think when we talk about diversity, we also have to talk not just about ethnic diversity, but about socioeconomic diversity. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And yeah. if we don't get to that, if we're saying, oh, well, I live in New York City or I live in this town in New Jersey and we have a 30% Asian population and we have, you know, um, 30% Jewish population, 20%, you know, we break it down yeah. into the ethnicities. We're not getting at talking about what does it mean for a child to grow up with people who are in the exact same economics, you know, sort of bubble as mm. them. What do they have access to? I think it's about access. Yeah. And when we don't have access to the same opportunities, then we are not in a, you know, we're not understanding what diversity really means. So, yeah. I mean, I, I, I struggle with this every day as a parent because, you know, my daughter doesn't, goes, in, goes to public school, but she is not exposed, I don't think, in the way that she needs to be to the, the, the range of the world. So yeah. how do I, you know, how do I as a parent then take responsibility for that mm. and, and make sure that she understands what the world really is and her responsibility in it and mm. learns empathy towards those who are not in the same shoes, right? We always, you know, we used to talk about, like, learn to walk in another people's shoes. But I think it goes beyond reading books about that. Or I think it even goes beyond going to a soup kitchen and serving a meal because there you're still separated. So it's about that engagement that can happen, which, you know, I think we're as a society struggling with, right? Yeah, exactly. I think that the opportunities are becoming... More and more access through, especially with uh, the new education secretary, the education yes. secretary, uh, divorce. Um, you know, she's like continuing to enhance those separations with money and access and, and charter, schools, and charter yeah. schools, all these kind of things, making it more and more difficult for people who are already struggling mm-hmm. to be able to get access to a good education. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And what I think as regular citizens, we have a responsibility to to look at what we you know I look at for example you know schools that have um, are privileged enough to have large coffers for their PTOs what mm-hmm. about looking at schools in your area in your in your state in your county that don't have the resources and saying let's create a charity fund you know if your school that is raising tons of money for your school find a school that you can partner with, adopt, whatever however yeah. you want to phrase it, and say, we will support you in bringing an author to your school. We will support arts programming. We will mm-hmm. help. You know, that's where we can engage in a, in a meaningful way. And also, you know, we talk about pen pals and we talk yeah. about doing things outside of America. And I think one of the things I really struggle with is, is how we teach our kids about what um, other parts of the world are needy, but we're not necessarily teaching them about our own backyards where there yeah. are such disparate, you know, dis- disparate experiences and how can we, you know, work to bridge that a little yeah. bit more. Yeah, it's, These it's, are things I think about, you know. Yeah, how exactly. do you, it's such yeah. an important conversation to have because I think it's something that's very lost. A lot of times people will, as you're saying, think about, um, you know, America in this kind of blanket terms and not see the, the at least the narratives I've been exposed to, they think about, um, you know, the self-made man and mm-hmm. all this kinds of stuff of the, you know, the, it, it's all about hard work and, and um, uh, that opportunities come when you just work hard and there's a vague mm-hmm. idea of 
you know, working on all these narratives about positivity that you just have to, you know, hit the pavement and resilience. And resilience. But misses and misses, yeah. I think, that whole aspect of, you know, how many resources, how many, you know, family support and uh, social social support, and mm-hmm. how people who don't have that access don't have that, coupled with, you know, the family background or the family, uh, the abilities of the family to access resources and all that. When you take that all away, then you know you have the resulting of, uh, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, people who are not are struggling, who are struggling and not able to achieve the benchmarks that they, that people have said are uh, the entry points of the meritocracy in this so-called meritocracy. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and um, I've been thinking about you know the story that's been in the news the last couple of days about the two young men um, from um, I think it was New Mexico yeah. who traveled seven hours by car. They were. Um, Native American Navajo, I believe, mm-hmm. um, and went on a tour, the tour at Colorado State University, and a mother on the tour um, called the police and reported that they looked suspicious mm-hmm. because they weren't answering her questions, yeah. and they were wearing strange t-shirts, kind of like yours probably, <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like cool manga or something <laughs> yeah. on it, yeah. and um, they were detained by the police, and you know, mm-hmm. I've just been thinking a lot about this incident first it's heartbreaking right Vijay I mean and then second the the fact that they the police asked I watched the video um, you know the body cam video and I listened to the call and she said you know they looked Mexican and they they looked different like they Mm. didn't belong what does that mean that you don't belong and they weren't they weren't talking they were too quiet Mm -hmm. culturally you know there are times where I've been taught to be quiet. I've been taught not to talk to authority or not to talk to people I don't know. Yeah. Or I've been uncomfortable. Or people have asked me uncomfortable questions and I've just not responded because I'd rather not say anything, right? Yeah. So, um, I don't know. It's just something, you know, I think about. You work, I mean, you work in, in a public place. I'm sure you yeah. encounter so many different places, in a, you know, kind of people in a library. Yeah. And, and it's so important to be able to check one's own assumptions when people come in and not be like, oh, this person is, you know, we create these whole narratives around the people we see. And if they look a certain way, then we assume this, this and this. And we don't know. And, and, and being able to acknowledge that, um, being able to acknowledge our, the limits of what we know about people and uh, being open to the fact that they're, they're there to learn and those kind of thing and being being shedding our assumptions yeah so also there was the news report about the former white house staffer uh uh, yeah was this the the gentleman who was moving into his apartment yeah yeah yeah. um i think not too far away from here yeah sixth street yeah the assumption again that when he was moving in that uh that he was there to rob as opposed to a new resident you know yeah these all these assumptions and how they play out, even in the Black Lives Matter movement, mm-hmm. how um, the police have any assumptions about the the community they serve, and how uh, that plays out in, in, in many times violent or uh, deadly interactions. You know, yeah. And I think going back to kids media, <clears throat> exposing children from a young age. I really yeah. am a big believer that you know childhood is the kind of critical time where we have the opportunity to shape Mm. these very malleable minds and teach kids to look at the world in a different way. So Mm -hmm. 
while you know you may you may have racist parents or you may yeah. have um, you know family members who talk a certain way you're spending most of your time in an educational and school setting so mm. schools have that opportunity to talk about difficult subjects to talk about race to talk about you know poverty and to include um, you know awkward conversations as part of the life not to steer away from them and be afraid of them we were working on a book and we were asked um, by the publisher to take the word poor out of the book mm. you know it was part of a dialogue where a child says my neighbor thinks I'm poor and these school adoption committees you know would have possibly rejected the book because it might have offended somebody oh, yeah. and you know we need to move past that right we need to get to a place <laughs> where talking about poverty doesn't mean that we're offending somebody we're, yeah. we're having conversations that this exists yeah I mean I think acknowledging the truth and being able to understand uh, you know connected to uh, the real world and not just talk about it in you know, bleak terms but rather right. using the specific precise language is also important but also this oversensitivity and just discussing things that they don't want that people or the public or the the readers they perceive that they don't even acknowledge exists you know poverty and and uh, and prejudice and racism and um, misogyny all those kinds of stuff that we'd rather just push under the rug but it's important to like acknowledge that there is a pay discrepancy there is uh, you know, there is a um, lives are lost because of assumptions about race that, mm -hmm. you know, all these kinds of things. So being able to address it from a young age, as you're saying, and being able to always uh, inoculate uh, students from this fear and prejudice. I and mean, there's always going to be some kind of gut reaction to unfamiliar, unfamiliar areas or unfamiliar people who look different. But then being able to say, oh, I, I remember I read a, a, or I was exposed to or I was somehow learned about this culture so that then there's some familiarity introduces mm -hmm. the idea of familiarity into the unfamiliar. Right, yeah. and that's what strips away fear, right? Yeah, exactly. Fear yeah. is completely rooted in lack of knowledge, right? Mm. If you don't know about something, you can, you're afraid of it. So. Mm. Yeah, good. So, um, so just to return to the kid maps, uh, project, uh, mm -hmm. Kids Inclusive and Diverse Media Action Project. Mm -hmm. If you talk a little bit about what that is and how it uh, connects to the OPSI we were discussing in the beginning. Yeah. Sure. So um, I was at a conference and um, met with some other um, children's media app developers a few years ago. Um, and we ended up creating this coalition. It's a grassroots coalition. It's interdisciplinary. So we have librarians, media mentors, um, academics, app developers, um, producers, researchers, and um, you know, our thinking is that creating a diverse and inclusive children's product is a lot like creating a beautiful garden. So it requires research, it requires planning, um, it requires you know, diverse hiring, and it requires um, mindful effort. So we've been working on a toolkit over time, very slowly, because we're a group of volunteers, but one of our um, first products that we've put out there is the Dig check Checklist, which is um, the diverse and inclusive growth checklist for, inc um, for high quality children's media. So this was designed to help um, media consumers and producers, so librarians, teachers, reviewers, um, to recognize high quality and inclusive children's digital media. So it's kind of a rubric for um, rating books. You can use it for 
books, you can use it for apps, you can use it for games as you build your collections to really think about, you know, how do I, um, how am I creating a collection that is representative and that that is mindful of my audience and gives them, as we talked about, you know, doors, windows, and mirrors mm. into their own and uh, experiences, reflections onto others and, you know, connections, right? So um, this checklist is available at joinkidmap.org um, and it's downloadable, you know, there's a downloadable PDF version of it and you, it's really broken down into content, um, audio, um, visual, who made the app, who made, who made the, what's the team behind it, and really has sort of a, you know, list by list. With, it's a real checklist that you can mm-hmm. use as, um, uh, you know, a gatekeeper. You're a gatekeeper, right? Mm. So what can gatekeepers use to evaluate children? This is particular to children's media. Yeah. Um, and this was created, uh, like I said, by a coalition. And we had some um, really wonderful researchers and librarians um, uh, also who work in bilingual children's um, education uh, creating it and we received a grant from the Joan Gans Cooney um, Center at Sesame Workshop to create this so it's a wonderful free resource out there and um, I think your you know kind of librarian community yeah. would definitely yeah definitely, definitely. yeah so before we close out I'll just ask you uh, I'm asking all the interviewees uh, all my guests about what they're consuming yeah. as whether it be you know in, as a person and uh, and as a parent uh, sure. what you're consuming and what you're advising kids to read and such and we most talk about okay. some titles yeah oh sure so um, one of uh, a couple of things I guess as a parent that I've really been enjoying mm-hmm. um, one is a new uh, children's magazine called kazoo which is uh, whose tagline is girls uh, who want to, for girls who want to make some noise, and yeah. it's a kind of science-focused um, magazine, but really um, has fiction, non-fiction, hands-on activities, and it's beautifully made and designed by actually a team in Brooklyn. So um, they have four quarterly issues a year, and um, it's wonderful. And we've also really been enjoying the Rebel Girls um, books, yeah. but they have a new podcast series. Um, I have an eight-year-old daughter, so that's yeah. become kind of a favorite thing for us. Um, you know, weekend nights we'll listen to that. There's also um, a really fun um, couple of other podcasts that I enjoy. One is called Extra Blurt, and it's an interactive game show for kids. It's 14 to 20 minutes long, um, created by a team of two women, and um, is available on iTunes and on Panel. Penel, I'm, I'm saying it wrong, so I'm yeah. not going to say it. But yeah. um, and uh, finally, in terms of books, I really um, I enjoyed a book. Um, let's see, I'm trying to think. I'm reading, just starting, uh, "The Serpent's Secret" by Sayantani Dasgupta, which okay. is a, um, a fantasy middle grade novel featuring a, a young um, Indian American girl. Um, who finds out that she has superpowers. So, yeah. And I just finished reading another middle grade book called um, Karma Kula's Mustache, uh-huh. which is about uh, a sixth grader going into middle school girl who discovers she has a mustache and yeah. is <laughs> struggling yeah. around it. So, yeah. Um, yeah, these are all kind of girl-centered things. I have a daughter, yeah. so I'm just yeah. trying to kind of plow through the media out there and, you know, mindfully curate stuff for her 
Good, so. good. Thanks so much. Yeah, I, I know the, uh, one book I read, Exit West, I just wanted to put out there for our audience and, and for you as well. Uh, it's a really great story about refugees, but it has a, it has a uh, magical realism element mm. that they're entering doors, and when you o- open the door and you go through the door, you end up in a, in ah. a different country. Oh, so from uh, Exit West, okay. so they're in an unnamed uh, Asian country, mm-hmm. South Asian country, I guess, or Arab country. Okay. Um, and then they're, they open this door and they go through the door and they enter into like Germany. And then they, they have to live there as a refugee. And, and the kind of how it extols on or how it expounds on the refugee crisis is very interesting. Yeah. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah, yeah. I will look into that. Yeah, um, yeah. I'll mention one other thing. It's a uh-huh. book I just ordered and received. Um, so I've just started going through it. It's called The Story Cure. And it's um, an A to Z um, of books to keep kids happy, healthy, and wise. And it's by these two bibliotherapists from yeah, England. Yeah. And the book is organized, you know, by ailments. So, you know always hungry, lost teddy bear, alphabetically. And for every book, there's a recommendation of, you know, contemporary and classic um, children's books Mm. that, you know, would be perfect for a child going through that condition. And then there are sidebars with, you know, books for adults dealing with kid-related issues. So it's wonderful. And um, I think it's published in the UK. So, but it's available on Amazon, and I just got my copy in. Oh, good, good. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for the recommendations and a discussion about diversity in apps and in diversity in education. So this closes out our interview portion of the Truths of Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free an open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you, so if you'd like to support our mission to continue uh, to bring you quality radio, we invite you to make a one-time donation or monthly pledge at radiofreebrooklyn.org slash donate. You can donate as little as a dollar, and every cent helps us to continue to stay on air. So please help support community radio by pledging whatever you can afford. And remember that uh, Ready for Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit, so your contribution is tax deductible to the fullest extent of the law. Um, also, if you'd like to stay in um, touch with what's going on in Ready for Brooklyn, please consider um, signing up for the newsletter at readyforbrooklyn.org backslash newsletter. The Truth to Power show will be giving away two tickets to Fana Fiala. Banafi Allah holds the flame of traditional Sufi Kowali music with the blessings of their teachers, some of the greatest masters of the Kowali form in India and Pakistan. The group's founding members have spent over 20 years learning this classical art, which celebrates the great Sufi mystics of old and, and uh, relishes in the love of the divine through poetry. Sung with a powerful soaring chorus and accompanied by energetic rhythms of the tabla and group clapping, the beloved is celebrated with ecstatic devotion. So we'll be giving away two tickets to their uh, performance on August 25th in Brooklyn, Saturday, August 25th in Brooklyn. All you need to do is write in to truthtopowershow at gmail.com and tell me your favorite episode of the Truth to Power Show out of the 25 episodes that have been uh, aired so far, including this one. All people who write in will enter for a raffle for the two tickets, and the lucky winner will receive two tickets to the August 25th performance um, 
in Brooklyn, Afanov B. Allah. So please enjoy their song and see you every Thursday at 9 a.m. on Radio for Bitcoin.
Daniela, 